Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, if you're an olive oil nerd or you just want to know more about the most staple of all staple pantry ingredients, stick around. You'll hear from an olive oil sommelier about what makes an olive oil balanced and delicious. He also explains some of the health and ecological benefits, too. Plus, you'll get tips for how to keep your olive oil from spoiling. We're also exploring how essential olive oil is to Palestinian cuisine and culture. And we'll hear about a Connecticut organization using olive oil to support the Palestinian people. Later in the show, you'll meet James Beard award-winning chef J.J. Johnson. We're celebrating rice, another staple. His new book is The Simple Art of Rice. But first, Tazos Kiriakidis is a certified olive oil sommelier, an assistant professor of the Yale School of Public Health. Olive oil is something home cooks use every single day, yet most of us know very little about it. I started by asking Tazos to help us understand the different categories of olive oil. So we know we all reach for extra virgin, but what does that actually mean, and how does an olive oil become one thing versus another? If we look at the categories of olive oil by definition and by standards that are set by the International Olive Council based out of Madrid, Spain, there's yeah, that's four. that's a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. There's four main categories. One is the extra virgin olive oil, which is at the top of the tier, where by definition it has to have no more than 0.8% of free fatty acid, no defects, and there's ways to score an olive oil and some defects that are identified. Mm-hmm. So by an, an actual ex- person, someone an, is there's there. A pan, there's panels that test these oils mm-hmm. that say they score it individually and then they sum it. The median score has to be zero, basically no defect. And then in addition, there's attributes, positive attributes. It tastes good. It's aromatic. It's flavorful. An extra virgin olive oil has to achieve a value that's positive, one point or more. Then... The second category after that is the virgin olive oil. Similar standards are applied. The free fatty acid content now can be a little bit higher. Some defects are allowed and not as many attributes would be expected. So that puts it in that second tier. Then the third one is ordinary olive oil, which implies, again, more relaxed in terms of defects that could be identified and maybe less positive attributes, and a higher free fatty acid. And then we go into sort of lower refined oils and all that, which is a blend of olive oil with after it gets processed even more. What are some examples of defects? What are people looking for when they're tasting? One of the most common defects is oxidation. It has this smell and taste of crayons and paint, and we say that's an oxidized oil. There's some other defects, products of processes that we should protect the oil from, and I'll give the rule of how to save your oil from having defects. There's a whiny fermented defect sometimes. Uh, It's very, very easy to detect if it's at at a sort of advanced stage. There's defects that smell like must. It's like you're opening 
your basement after three years of being locked up and that smell and you, it comes across in an olive oil. It's, it's impressive how clear it can be sometimes that you can detect that. Mm, so if someone is smelling basement, that is a defect yes. that is not going to be an extra virgin olive oil. It might have started there, but over time, it was exposed to conditions that forced it to develop like that. So the four enemies of olive oil, heat, age, time that you're storing or saving your olive oil, light, and oxygen. So halo is one mnemonic. Uh. Others have used ola, H-O-L-A, depending on how you order the letters. So basically, your olive oil should not be stored near a heat source. So if you have your olive oil bottle next to a stove, it's not a good idea. So many of us do. Yes. (laughs) I I do that all the time when I walk into people's houses, friends' houses, and I see that. I take it away from the heat source. Or if it's sitting in front of a window that gets direct sunlight, that's another place where, especially in the summer, it could get hot. So oxygen, the moment you open the um, bottle of olive oil, oxygen comes in. Anytime you open it, make sure you close it back. Light, if it's in a bottle that's not dark, again, light allows anything that could go wrong, go wrong in a bottle that's clear. Olive oils that are stored in dark glass bottles, or I've seen aluminum bottles now. A lot of people are now switching to very environmentally friendly bag in a box that is obviously food grade. And then the last one is age. Olive oil has to be consumed as soon as possible. It has to be fresh when it's consumed. Unlike wine, you can let it sit there and mature. Olive oil does not need to be matured. It does not get better with age. It doesn't get better with age. So how is olive oil made? If you think about it simply, it's, it's a juice from a fruit. An olive is a fruit. The traditional way is manually harvested from trees. Then it's taken to a mill to be pressed by mechanical means, either crushers or there's new technologies now. It's, it's almost like knives in a contained environment. And at the end, you get the very green oil that comes out. And most of the oil is filtered. During the process of extraction, imagine you have big equipment that gets that juice out of the olives. There might be particles that stay behind. You don't get just oil. You might get some water droplets. Hopefully, there's no residue from leaves or anything that came with the olives. But if you filter it, all of that stays behind. You want to minimize the risk of any oxidation fermentation because if you have a water droplet stuck behind, it increases the the rate at which you get oxidation and the risk of oxidation. Another enemy, water. Yes, water, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And I just want to paint a picture for listeners, too. You said the olives are manually harvested. Sometimes what that looks like on some of these farms is like literally people are knocking the trees with rakes and the olives are falling. Yeah, I mean, the traditional groves, if you look at the Mediterranean, California the same, and Latin American countries that produce olive oil now, it's done that way. You see people on trees harvesting. There's obviously some modern equipment that you can use with extenders to reach to the top of the tree. There's obviously more recently different ways of, um, again, more intensive olive agriculture where you new trees are planted in a sort of a row after row. And then for that, if you have a lot of olive trees, you have to use some machinery to do that. You cannot harvest by hand using minimal tools if you have thousands and thousands of trees and you want to harvest within a period of time because you don't want that to last for six months because Mm -hmm. you want to extract the oil as quickly as possible. Yeah. Now you are an olive oil sommelier. What 
in your mind, makes a great olive oil? Every oil is different. You have to allow yourself to experience what the oil is showing to you, is telling you. So to me, an olive oil, first of all, has to be balanced. And by balanced, I mean the fresh oil will have both some pungency, some spiciness, and it will also have some bitterness. Those are positive attributes. You do expect the olive oil to be spicy and pungent because that is reflective of the phenols, the polyphenols, the the compounds in the olive oil that give us the health benefits. And those are the ones that cause, you know, sometimes you cough because the oil is so strong, so spicy that it's a reflex reaction. You ha- you have to cough because yeah. it, it tickles your throat. And you have when you're doing tastings, you actually tell people too, like you. It's will okay probably to cough. cough. Yes. That is a good thing. That is a good thing. And people refer to them. You know, if you sit around panels that do these tastings and and competitions, you hear people coughing. Oh, that's a three cough oil. <laughs> <laughs> and on sort of the flip side, you do expect some bitterness because if you think about it, a fresh oil produced from olives that were harvested yesterday. It's going to have some bitterness from the olive. The earlier the olives are harvested, they're green, the more bitter they're going to be. It's a good bitterness, though. It's not an artificial bitterness. It's a fruit-induced bitterness because of that. And if anybody has a chance to try an olive on the tree, do so. It's a very interesting experience. You take a bite, immediately you feel the bitterness, and then your your lips pucker up because it's so bitter in a good way, and also you feel the spiciness kick in. Mm. And that's how I started sort of understanding how an oil would taste. So when you taste it, what you don't want is too spicy, no bitterness, or too bitter, not too spicy. To me, a great oil would be one that has both, whether it's both high, both medium, both low. You know, if we think of oil as a food that can be used to elevate a dish when you're cooking. You don't want something that's going to be overpowering. You want something that it will pair well with what you're preparing, but at the same time show you its character. What are the best olive oils to cook with? What do you do in your own cooking? Because I know you're a cook, yeah. too. In terms of cooking, there's a myth that's been perpetuated for many, many, many years about olive oil. That is, we cannot fry with olive oil. That's a myth that's been proven wrong. So fry with it, cook with it, bake with it, drizzle it. Salads, desserts, even ice cream, fruit. So it has every use that you can think of in the kitchen. Don't be afraid to experiment. The analogy would be with wine. What would you pair a red wine with? What would you pair a white wine with? Likewise, a very robust and strong oil, whether it's spicy, bitter, use it for foods that you want the oil to kind of show itself you would not use a very strong oil on a mild cheese because that would just overpower it. However, if you have a nice Florentine steak, you want to use a very robust Tuscan oil because that will just explode in terms of flavor and taste and smell. Sometimes we know what the characteristics of a wine is because we know what the grape is. So really, when you talk about a dark olive oil versus a light one and the different types, are we talking actually about different olives? There's probably about 1,500 or so different varieties of olives. Wow. Not everyone produces olive oil. Some of them are used for table olives. But if we look at the olive oil producing varieties, most of the big ones have varieties of olive oil have almost signature smell, 
the earlier you harvest and get the oil, the more distinct that smell and flavor would be. Later in the season, it's still there, different level. The top olive oils in the world, year after year, they harvest around mid to late September to sort of elevate the expression of those flavors early on. But from a health standpoint, I mentioned before, this compounds the polyphenols that give us the positive attributes to health. Well, those are produced by a tree as a response to their stress. Because if you think about the olive tree, which requires minimum water, if you harvest the fruit early, you're picking it at a time when the tree is trying to hold onto those polyphenols. So a lot of these intense flavors and smells are coming early on. Not that later in the season you cannot identify, but it might be harder compared to earlier on. So I would love to talk about the health benefits of olive oil, because this is sort of where your passion for olive oil and your work as an academic intersects. What are the health benefits of olive oil? We have the cardiovascular, which is the, the majority of the evidence that has accumulated. Both primary prevention, meaning you consume this kind of food, olive oil, instead of other fats in your diet, you are less likely to have any downstream negative effects on your cardiovascular health. Recently, there was a study that showed that actually it helps people who already might have had a cardiovascular episode. If they start now on a different diet and eating olive oil, their risk is a third less than people who continue on the regular diet that they had before their episode. A lot of work in cancer shows a lot of promise in how do these antioxidants and anti-inflammatories these polyphenols that I mentioned, what is the the implications at the cellular level, but also, you know, obviously at the big picture, how is it affecting it? But at the end of the day, you have a food that will give you benefit. Olive oil is probably the only natural product that has a health claim by EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority. So that that's pretty impressive, yeah. a natural it's product. Medicinal. Medicinal. <laughs> a lot of work now in preliminary studies in Alzheimer's and other brain-related conditions. Some promise, at least in some animal models, and now we've showed that on a small study, sort of a pilot to show is there evidence that there's benefit among people with Alzheimer's. And all the indicators that show progression of disease were improved compared to other oils that they were con- the other groups were consuming. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work in that let alone the sort of the planetary health implications. I think we're still very young in identifying the actual footprint, if you will, the positive footprint that the olive tree and its products have on this planet. It is a climate-friendly food. Very climate-friendly. For every liter of olive oil that's produced, the offset of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is almost 23 pounds. So multiply that by the number of places like Andalusia in, in Spain with 66 million trees. Imagine how much carbon dioxide is put in the soil from the atmosphere. Wow. So we know that olive oil is really beneficial for us. Olive oil tastings are something that you do. Let's give people an idea of what is happening at an olive oil tasting. What is the best way to taste olive oil if you are a foodie and you want to have a deeper appreciation for this oil? The process is very simple. You need some glass container. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if you have plastic or paper, it might absorb some of the smell of the the cup that you're using. So you want to use glass. There's little glasses that are made 
specifically for olive oil to taste olive oil. Yeah, they look almost like little bowls. Little bowls, like, exactly. I read and, and experienced yeah. that you hold them in your hand yes. and move them around a little bit, shift them around so that the you want the heat of your yes. hand to warm up the olive oil a bit. And you cover the top of the glass. It will trap the aromas as the temperature goes up and all the components that have that aroma are, are trapped inside your glass. So when you uncover it, you get the smell. Yeah. So that's the first experience. Yes, a burst of peppery smells yes. or the smells that are like arugula or artichoke. The smells, I remember uh, I had an olive oil that smelled like spring. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and, that's and it's part of the experience. Part of the experience is that. And I think the key is the more you engage your senses, mostly the, the first part is the smelling. Good oil, you definitely smell it. Visually, there's nothing there. You'll hear people say, oh, that's a green oil, so it's probably better than the yellow oil. That's another myth. Mm -hmm. Color has nothing to do with the quality and the aroma and the taste of an olive oil. I've tasted amazing yellow-looking oils and green oils that were not that good. And that's why in professional competitions, they've always been using glasses that are blue, dark blue, so you cannot see. But actually, the University of Barcelona group figured out that the best color is this red Department of Physics actually was involved in telling them what color should we have these glass containers so it neutralizes the color of the olive oil. So you can't tell if it's a yellow or a green. So once you do that part, then you taste it. The one thing that I always, people comment on, well, I smelled one thing, but I taste something different. <laughs> yeah, of course. And right? that's okay because different compounds will give the aroma, different compounds will give the flavor. To me, the best way to enjoy the taste of an olive oil is see if you can trace back some memory that it brings to you. Let the oil take you where you have been, where you've seen, where you've smelled, where you've tasted. Mm, a taste memory. You'll never forget it. You'll yeah. never forget it. And over the years, I've tasted oils that brought me back 40 years from a particular smell and a particular taste. You then close your eyes. No music, no nothing, because you, the only senses you want to engage when smelling and tasting olive oil is your nose and your mouth. And a reminder that if you cough, that is a good thing. Yes, that is a good thing. <laughs> that is a very good thing. I remember you gave me three good olive oils to taste. I had this experience where like, ah, party in my mouth, right? Yep. Amazing things, pepper, all kinds of stuff was happening. And then you said, okay, now taste this one. And I tasted it. And it didn't taste like much. It didn't taste like anything, really. It was more of a just a, a viscosity in yeah. my mouth. But I also had the thought of like, oh, this is what my olive oil at home tastes like. <laughs> this is yeah. what a lot of people have. I, I think if you go to any retail store and buy oils, you have to be able to recognize if it's defective. So that's why I take the same oil that I use, same good oil that I use in my tasting, and I on purpose make it bad. And how do you make it bad? Put it near a stove. Yeah. Put it outside in the sun open lid, two, three hours, it's done. So learn how to identify that and feel free to experiment. Yeah. Try different oils and you'll say, okay, this didn't taste that good, but this one, oh my God, this was like really elevated all my food. So let's help people try different olive oils. And can you help us understand what we are looking at and reading when we look at an olive oil bottle? So what am I looking for when I walk into a store to go to the olive oil section and the shelf? First thing is a dark container, whether it's glass or any other material. I, I will stay away from plastic because one, I don't know how long they've been on the shelf. 
but I know that if it's in a glass container, at least it's protected from some of the enemies that we talked about earlier. A lot of the companies now are putting a QR code so you can scan and get all the information that they provide. Some companies will put down to the tree that, <laughs> that the, this olive oil came from. That's cool, That's knowing cool. where your food exactly. comes from. <laughs> Others will say came from this grove in this area, but at least there's some information there. Usually you'll find the harvest year. Some companies are, are very good about even putting the day of harvest, October 14th, 2022. Others will say October 22. Others will say 22 slash 23 season. At least they're giving you some information. And the reason I'm mentioning that is we're waiting for the harvest of 2023 from the Mediterranean. So if you see on the shelf something that says 2019, that's four-year-old oil. It doesn't mean it's bad, but it's been sitting there. It's going to lose some of its aromas, some of its spiciness and pungency and those polyphenols. The other thing to look for is, is it a blend? Let's say you identify during a tasting or you tried something and, oh, I like this variety. I like Coratinas from Puglia. You can look for that. A lot of the companies will put the kind of olive that they use to produce this oil, but sometimes they will blend it. Lecino, for example, it's a very strong one. Very few people will have it just that in an olive oil. So they blend it because it gives you that spiciness, but for some people, it's too strong. Yeah, they're going for some balance. They're yes, trying to balance exactly. out. So you put a yeah. more of a, a Frantoyo, another mainstream Tuscan variety that is more mellow. You put a little bit of the spiciness from the Chino, now you have a, a nice oil. Mm-hmm. But if you like the strong, go for olive oil that says 100% Lecino. So you have to be able to read that label and identify where it's coming from. The other thing, there's some companies that buy oil or produce oil from different parts of the, you know, they might have groves in Italy and Spain and Greece, Morocco, wherever, and they have one place where the oil comes and they have to say this olive oil is produced from olive oil from these three countries. So there's a lot of information. The problem with, if you think of a half liter bottle or one liter bottle, 750 milliliters, the real estate, it's, it's limited because they have to have their logo, their design, and then you have to have all this information. That's why I said technology actually is helping because on the QR code, you can put all that information. And now there's a lot of movement, at least in Europe, and I'm involved in a project to standardize the tracking information they can put in using... AI, artificial intelligence, and blockchain methodology. So from the grove to the shelf, you can trace every touch point with a code. That's amazing. It's amazing. And actually, we're trying to build now data behind it on the climate conditions at the time of harvest. How does American olive oil compare to olive oils made in the places that are sort of famous for great olive oil? I know you have your favorites are Italy, Spain, and Greece. How does our olive oil compare? I've had good olive oil from California. That's the number one place in the U.S. that produces it. Our Bikina primarily, and there's some Greek varieties that now are, are becoming good oils from California. There is one native variety of olives, the Mission, the only native of California. It's not my kind of oil because I like <laughs> the very robust and, and strong, but it's a good, it's a good oil. I, I've tried it. There's some places now that are coming up. Oregon started producing some decent oil. It's a young industry. If you think about compared to the Mediterranean, compared to Middle East countries that are produced, North Africa. So it's going to get better. There's some uh, groves now in Texas 
Uh, Texas. That, yep. Um, <laughs> wow. Actually, one that's really good, Georgia. Some small groves there. Obviously, the the production of olive oil in the U.S. cannot sustain the demand. Even though we're not, as a country, we're not using anywhere near what countries like Spain, Italy, Greece are consuming. We're consuming one liter per person per year. That's because people follow lots of recipes that say two tablespoons of olive oil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, really, you need some good glugs, people. Which it creates an interesting dilemma. How are we going to sustain that demand? If, if all of a sudden the U.S. goes to five liters per person per year, that's a 500% increase. Maybe we should be talking more about planting and, and thinking creatively how we increase the groves across the, the globe. Because now we know what the planetary implications are. And it's a tree that doesn't need a lot of care. It can live for hundreds and hundreds of years. In California, they're pulling out almond trees or thinking about it and planting olive trees. That conversation needs to happen more now than, than ever since we see what, what's happening on the climate. The next 50 years are going to be very important, even in the United States, in terms yeah. of olive oil. And who knows? Texas could be making a three-cough yeah, exactly. olive oil exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that ends up really taking off. Yeah. Once you the light bulb goes off of what this is and how can I experiment to use something that is a natural product and it's good for me. It's, it's a food that I want I'm going to enjoy. Cause yeah, it is delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> I mean, that, that's – and as a scientist, do I talk about the health benefits first as opposed to, no, th this is actually really tasty. Mm -hmm. See for yourselves. Well, Tazas, I am so grateful for your time and your expertise. I really love talking about olive oil with you. It's been fun. I enjoyed talking about these things, and thank you. That was Tazos Kiriakidis. He's a certified olive oil sommelier and assistant professor of the Yale School of Public Health. Special thanks to Elm City Market in New Haven. Tazos and I met there to taste a selection of olive oils from Greece, Spain, and Italy. You can see photos of the oils and Tazos's tasting notes for each on our show page ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, a story about the importance of olive trees and oil to Palestinians. Because olive trees are resilient, the Palestinians feel it represents them. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Olive oil is a key ingredient in many cultures, but for some, it's more than that. It's a symbol of national identity. For Palestinians, olive oil and the trees that produce it have long been central in their art and literature. But they're also major drivers of the local economies in Gaza and the West Bank. Producer Meg Dalton reports on one Connecticut organization using olive oil to educate the community about the region. We'll also hear from a Palestinian food blogger about the importance of olive trees. In December, the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme opened its doors for a holiday market. There were tables full of Haitian arts and crafts, jewelry handcrafted by Lakota artisans, and lots of Palestinian olive oil. It's, it's pure. You can, you can tell it's pure. Uh, it's different than the one I always used to buy from the market, to be honest. And, um, you know, I feel good every time. I'm paying a, little, a bit more, but I feel good that I'm, I'm trying to help someone over there. Gufran Alababidi is the president of the Tree of Life Educational Fund. The social justice nonprofit has been amplifying the Palestinian cause for more than two decades in Connecticut. And they do that in part through the sale of Palestinian olive oil. Back home, we see a closest way to the human is his stomach. Gufran was born and raised in Syria, but became an American citizen in 2005. One day at her mosque, she met some of the organizers behind the Tree of Life and got involved. In 2016, she took her first trip to the Holy Land as part of the Tree of Life's annual interfaith journey to the region, something it's been doing since the early 2000s. For Gufran, the trip opened her eyes to what life is like for Palestinians under Israeli occupation. And it also introduced her to Palestinian cuisine, including its olive oil. Since 2010, Tree of Life has sold Palestinian olive oil here in Connecticut to fund partial scholarships for students in Gaza and the West Bank. We call it education in a bottle, which is uh, every time we sell like around six boxes of these bottles, it can support a Palestinian who goes uh, to college for the whole semester. Tree of Life sells the olive oil at markets like this one, but also in the church's shop every Sunday, at local mosques, and even online. Annually, Tree of Life raises about $10,000 for the scholarships, helping about 30 students total. I think food is a commonality with all people. Um, And it's through food and sharing meals and breaking bread together that you begin to see the humanity in another person. Rebecca Crosby is a board member of Tree of Life and a retired pastor of the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme. Over the past few months, there's been more interest in Tree of Life's Education in a Bottle program. People are seeing the buying of olive oil and the scholarships as a way that they can help. By selling the olive oil, Tree of Life is not only helping to fund scholarships for Palestinian students, but it's also introducing Connecticut residents to a staple of many Palestinian recipes. Olive oil has, in Palestine, has a unique taste, uh, uh, the aroma and uh, robust flavor. Also, it has a slight bitterness, which kind of distinguishes the olive oil from other olive oil in different regions. 
Wafa Shami is the food blogger behind Palestine in a Dish and author of several children's books. She was born and raised in Ramallah in the West Bank, but now lives in the U.S. She says olive oil and the trees used to make it are central to Palestinian cuisine, and also its history, culture, and economy. Uh, Palestinians look at the trees not just as tree. It's a it's a symbolic to Palestinians. It um, connects them to the land, and I think uh, because olive trees are resilient, uh, they require low maintenance. They they can live through drought and grow under poor soil conditions. So the Palestinians feel it uh, represents them in part of resistance and resilience. About 100,000 Palestinian families rely on olive trees for their primary or secondary source of income. Most of the olives are used to produce olive oil, but some are cured for eating or used to make soap. The West Bank alone produces more than 30,000 tons of olive oil annually. Gaza, closer to 5,000 tons. For Palestinians, the annual olive harvest is usually a time to connect with family, friends, and the land. It's uh, more of a celebration, festivities. A lot of uh, people uh, who owns olive groves uh, usually go down to the olive groves with their families and their friends. They pick the olives, uh, they collect the olives, and, you know, through singing, folk singing, dancing, taking their food and eating under the trees. This year, the olive harvest coincided with the start of war. And that's made it a dangerous time for Palestinian farmers. In the West Bank, there have been reports about Israeli settler attacks on farmers and the destruction of their olive groves. On top of that, much of the population in Gaza is being starved. Food and water are in short supply. And so it feels really hard to talk about or even celebrate Palestinian food right now. We wake up every day on this nightmare to this nightmare is just horrific. Despite all this, Palestinians continued to harvest their olive groves over the past few months. The trees have deep roots in the land, as do Palestinians like Wafa. She has fond memories of harvesting olives as a kid and even wrote a children's book about the experience called Olive Harvest in Palestine. For her, the olive oil produced by these trees can help tell the story of Palestinian culture. The same goes for the recipes on her blog, Palestine in a Dish. Food brings people together. I think there's so much differences, but yet there are so much similarities. There's a lot of stories that comes with food. On her blog, she shares traditional and modern recipes she learned from her mother or other members of her family. That includes a recipe for musahan, often considered the national dish of Palestine. And usually people celebrate cooking this dish during the harvest and the first pick of olive oil when people, you know, get their olive oil fresh during the harvest, which takes place uh, in October, November of every year. People uh, love to make uh, this dish because they like to use the fresh uh, harvested olive, olive oil. The dish is both popular and one of Wafa's personal favorites. It's made with a special flatbread called taboon bread, covered in caramelized onions and lots of olive oil. It's topped with roasted chicken, lots of spices like sumac and pine nuts. Even in the darkest of times, food can spark joy. It's a source of passion for Wafa, and also its own form of activism. She's trying to change the narrative of Palestine, one recipe at a time. That was Wafa Shami the food blogger behind Palestine in a Dish. 
We'll link to her Musahan recipe at ctpublic.org seasoned. For more of her recipes, check out palestineinadish.com or follow her on Instagram at palestineinadish. We also heard from Gufran Alababidi and Rebecca Crosby of the Tree of Life Educational Fund. We'll link to where you can buy their Palestinian olive oil on our website. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. After a short break, chef and author J.J. Johnson talks about the origins of rice and how it shows up in different cultures and cuisines. He'll share rice cooking tips, too. The finger trick, it's going to work every time and give you the perfect pot of rice. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Now we'll go from one essential cooking ingredient to another, rice. It's the foundation of so many of the world's cuisines. Want to get to know someone? Don't ask what they do for work. Ask how they cook their rice. Our next guest is James Beard Award-winning cookbook author, J.J. Johnson. J.J.'s the founder of Field Trip, a trio of fast, casual restaurants in New York City focused around freshly milled rice. JJ's new book is The Simple Art of Rice, recipes from around the world for the heart of your table. He wrote it with co-author Danica Novgordov. It's a multicultural celebration of maybe the world's most perfect food. JJ's love of rice comes from his Afro-Puerto Rican grandmother and Danica's from her Chinese grandmother. Producers Tegan Engel and Catrice Claudio got JJ on a Zoom to talk about the origins of rice, its history in America, some heirloom varieties that may be new to you, and yes, JJ explains the finger trick that so many young cooks learn from parents or grandparents. Tegan starts by asking JJ to read the Mary Oliver poem that starts off the book. I don't want you to just sit at the table. I don't want you to just eat and be content. I want you to walk into the field where the water is shining and the rice has risen. I want you to stand there far from the white tablecloth. I want you to fill your hands with mud like a blessing. Yeah, why did you choose that poem? There's a lost appreciation of rice at the table. I think there's also a lost appreciation that a lot of people just sit at the table and just eat and don't have conversation anymore. And my table as a kid was very vibrant, was very comforting. And there was a, a lot of appreciation of like the hands that went into the pots, the hands that touched the food. And in this one, this poem just like really touched us. But I want to fill your hands with mud like a blessing. For a lot of people in America, the fields with mud is a blessing to them. It's how they support their families. It's how they keep America rich because of our agriculture system and for Black Americans, the mud was the foundation of for a lot of us. As we were the farmers, we were the people driving America to be rich. Yeah, absolutely. Can you paint a picture of your family's Sunday dinners when you were young and what made you fall in love with rice? We all get excited about rice. I just want to talk about it still. There's no... Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> my Sunday dinner was at my grandparents' house. 
Well, my grandmother would cook all week leading up to that dinner. She would be making her own stocks. She would be prepping out her rice dishes. She would be figuring out her desserts. Her sous chefs were my great, great aunts. So she had like a full blown out kitchen going to cooking for a 16 person or 10 person dinner party. And it was family style. There would be moments at the table had paella or aso pao mm. or arroz con gondules or clams oreganado or lasagna. But it was probably everybody's happiest moment. I was young, but I remember it vividly. I was in the kitchen with her trying to do something. If it was peeling onions and carrots, if it was washing the rice, those were the moments of what injected food DNA into me. And as a really young kid, I loved rice. I was eating asopao out of a, a rice cup. Asopao is a soupy rice dish in the Puerto Rican culture. You can have asopao de camarones, which is soupy rice and shrimp. You can have asopao de pollo, which is soupy rice and chicken. It is filling. It is comforting. It is delicious. And it is a very big staple in the Puerto Rican culture. Like if you have a big family, it's something you can make and put at the table and it will feed a lot of people. Or it's something you can eat two or three times in the week if you're a working parent. So what really resonates with me is this idea where the family bought up basically the whole street. Everybody's in proximity to each other, having gatherings, dinners, cookouts, etc. And I know for certain as a Puerto Rican child or a half Puerto Rican child, mommy always has Sancocho and Asopao or pot of one or the other on stove every single time I would go to her house on Sunday. So that was a lovely illustration. Okay. What was in your Sancocho? It was corn, chicken. It was all the root vegetables. So I hope I didn't let you down because I did Sancocho in the book and I feel like it's a it's a staple. Yes. Um, for folks. I mean, I love Sancocho. I'm always going to the Dominican spot to get a, a mm-hmm. small cup of Sancocho. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes is that tradition is the inspiration, not the destination. So mm-hmm. you can't disappoint me with a good Sancocho anywhere. Um, <laughs> how did your shared but different cultural experiences between you and your author feed your creative collaboration on this book? Being that Danica had ancestry from China, you had ancestry from the Caribbean, how did that mold the simple art of rice? There's mm-hmm. no way I can write a book this beautiful without having Danica. And the love of rice for her, when we sat down at a field trip, she brought like three pages and she handed it to me and she said, I think you should read this. Mm-hmm. And it was her childhood story of how she grew up with rice, seeing the individual grain, her father making fried rice, right? These moments of connectivity. And that's what rice really does. We got connected over the simple grain. That is in everybody's household. I think when when you dive deep into the culture of rice in West Africa, which we do, there's not much textbook information about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's really based off of hymns and whispers. And when she dives deep into like Asian cookery, based off a tradition and what your grandparents have told you, there's so many stories out there. There's so many rice dishes. There's so much to tell. That harkens to this part of the book where you and Dr. Jessica B. Harris talk about rice cultures and how, like, we really do have rice as a backbone of our culture. 
You talked about going to Africa and learning more about rice there because there wasn't a lot of written information. So when you went to Ghana, could you talk about the home-cooked meal you ate in Accra and how it inspired your culinary focus on rice? I went to Ghana in 2011. I found myself there through food, and I went there to cook American-themed dinners. So I'm bringing the Black American culture (laughs) to Ghana, but I left with learning more about myself through food. You know, there were just great moments there of like jollof rice or wake. And without that trip, I wouldn't be who I was. But when rice hits the table there, people get excited. When that person puts that pot of jollof on you, like, okay, I'm not going nowhere. I'm about to pull up a seat because I know if I leave, somebody else is going to come take my seat (laughs) and I'm going to miss out on this beautiful, I call luxurious bowl of rice that can have anything in it. That was my first instance of jollof. It was tomatoey. It was spicy. It was vibrant. The flavors ran up my nose. It was humbling. It was comforting. And that's why in The Simple Art of Rice, I wanted to highlight a different type of jollof that we don't know, which was the the Liberian jollof. And they make a jollof rice that's very similar to jambalaya, Mm -hmm. where it's a little bit more stickier and has all this, you know, meat flavor into it. It's really, really good. And lots of seafood Um, stewed in it, too. Correct. It feels like the kitchen sink, but I feel like if you've mastered your jollof cooking, this is your next step. Yeah, I love that you shared so much about your co-author. And there's so many layers of stories where you, you know, you bring in other people who have these rich food histories, as well as a lot of history of rice, both through Asia and through West Africa. And also as rice has traveled into what we now call the Americas. I want to ask you both about African red rice, but I wanted to start by asking you about Carolina gold rice and how it traveled to the Americas through the enslavement of African peoples. And if you could share a little bit of that story about that rice and also about African red rice. I think we take a step back before we talk about like Carolina gold rice is that there's two yellow brick roads for rice. In those two yellow brick roads, West Africa was the dominant producer of rice for the world at one point. Mm -hmm. Nobody tells you that, right? And the grain is called glamorima. And for some reason, West Africa started to sell rice grains to China because it was getting blacklisted. So then when it went to China, the grain started to morph and became Glamorima Oriza. And Chinese realized, well, we don't need Africa to make the rice anymore. We can produce it at mass. So that's why when we think of rice, we automatically think of Asia. We don't think about West Africa at all. Mm So. Rice starts to move to the West through slavery, right? And enslaved people start to braid the rice in their hair. They start to hide it in places. And that those rice grains start to sprinkle through the Caribbean and into the American South. And you can see it in the ports of America where rice is, Martha's Vineyard, the Gullah Geechee, right? New Orleans, you can see it in the ports the rich rice districts of America, and it came from the people. And that rice is planted in the Carolinas, South Carolina, and Carolina gold rice starts to then grow and becomes a cash crop, just like cotton and gold, which also to me is like one of those like most upsetting moments 
the enslaved people become free. They want the land. Nobody wants to give them the land Mm -hmm. because they still want to grow rice. If the enslaved free West Africans were growing rice, yes, they would have became rich, wealthy, right? Right, Mm -hmm. right. But America would even be even richer, which is even crazy to think about because our country's reason why we're rich is on agriculture. So rice then comes off the market. That Carolina gold rice goes away. Why on a lot of labels in grocery stores you see Carolina rice, Mm -hmm. right? But it's not Carolina gold. It's a marketing method to let you know, oh, you can still get that Carolina gold rice, right? Because nobody knew. And now over the last 10 years, big up to Sean Brock, big up to Glenn Roberts, really have figured out how to make Carolina rice grow. And then they've handed the baton to me because of Field Trip and many rice growers now are trying to grow Carolina gold. And my goal is to try to get Carolina gold back on the shelf for folks to be able to purchase so that you can cook it at home. If you've never had it before, you should get it. You can cook it. You'll see it. (laughs) You'll see these gold grains pop. Red rice, West African red rice, was actually banned on the table in America until Thomas Jefferson put his name in front of it. Mm. So because everybody knew that red rice came from West Africa, they didn't want people growing it. So Thomas Jefferson was like, hmm, let me call this Jefferson Red. So once he put his name on front of it, nobody could ban it from the table. But then it also became a cash crop. So rice has a lot of history. It's like one of those grains that can really help folks learn about history in many areas around the world. You definitely bring this home in your book, The Simple Art of Rice. You talk often about heirloom varieties. We think about tomatoes when we think about heirlooms, but you actually expose us to the idea of heirloom varieties of rice, including Carolina gold, including African red rice. Are there any other lesser known varieties that you may want people to explore that they may have not tried before? Yeah, there's Midlands, which is like a short grain rice. There is Charleston gold which is native. I think everybody should eat black rice. Yes. Oh my God. I love black rice. Because it's it's grown black, cultivated back, served black. I love it. And it has vitamin B. It's good for if you have some in your family with diabetes that they should consume it. And it's Um, like black purple and it's chewy. It's so delicious. Yeah. It's very good. I think people should try rice grits. The rice grits in here is a cheesy rice grits with bacon and chilies. And basically, I'm letting you know, like, you can have rice for breakfast. This is very simple. Who doesn't love cheese in their grits? But the process is just like a slow and low process, right? You rinse your rice in a large bowl and a large saute pan. You combine a little bit of stock, heavy cream, bay leaf, a little salt. And then you slowly add in that cracked rice, whisking it and letting it reduce at a low heat and simmer. And once that rice is almost, I say, about 90% cooked, then you add in that grated cheddar cheese, crunchy bacon, and then you slice up some jalapenos to put on top for your guests. And this dish will go perfect with some scrambled eggs on the side. And if you are a grit lover, but you have somebody in your house that doesn't like grits but loves rice, this is a good dish to make for them. And then you can laugh at the end and tell them like, oh, look, you're eating rice grits. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many recipes that I could sit here for two hours asking you about all the recipes that are amazing from all over the world. But you also have all these sections where you help people learn different ways to cook rice. 
you give instructions about rice cookers, about cooking rice in a pot and about in the oven, and you you change up the measurements of water and things to help people learn that. Can you talk a little about the finger trick for measuring? The finger trick is the key of cooking rice. There's a couple key points of cooking rice. I, I, I don't want people to think, well, I got the finger trick now and I'm good. <laughs> it's you need the right pot because remember, rice doubles in size. You need to make sure that, you know, you're not overcrowding it so that it can grow. And you rinse your rice, you place it in your pan, you flatten it out, and then you put your finger on the top of the rice and you bring it to the first knuckle on your third finger. And you put the top on and you let it cook at medium heat. You don't move the pan. You don't stir the pan. And that's what a lot of people mess up with rice is like they moving it and they're stirring it. If you take the top off or you move it and stir, it's not going to work out. Mm -hmm. But the finger trick, it doesn't matter if my hand is bigger than yours or your hand is bigger than mine. It's going to work every time and give you the perfect pot of rice. And one really important part also that you outline is that after the rice is done and it's absorbed the water, you need to let it sit and steam for a little bit to really finish cooking and then fluff right, it. So I fluff the rice. It should break apart beautifully like pearls. You put the top back on and you let it steam out. And whatever stuck to the bottom of the pot will come off that beautiful bagel, concon, mm -hmm. whatever culture yes. you're from. Yeah. It will come off perfectly and you won't be there scrubbing the bottom of your pot like you normally do. So rice can be impressive, but it can also be very comforting. And my grandfather mastered making this one dish with rice, onions, tomatoes, and mackerel. And that was probably one of the most comforting dinners I've ever had to experience. So my question for you is, what has been the most comforting rice dish for you? And which one of these recipes best hits for that experience? You see, every time I get with somebody, I always talk about another rice dish I need to have in this book. <laughs> that was your way of being like, JJ, what? it's so cool, you know. But my most comforting rice, rice dish, I think, is the perfect steamed rice with chicken fat poured on top yes. from the roasted chicken. You know, all that juice from the roasted chicken, you spoon <laughs> that on top of the rice. Yes, sir. All that like seasoning. That, that just has so much flavor. But I talk about a lot of comforting dishes in the book. I talk about my grandfather Johnson's Mississippi gumbo, my auntie Lane's curry rice with split peas, the aso pal, mm -hmm. the rice crepes I do with my kids that just bring a beautiful oh, yeah. smile on their face. Yeah, I love that you do some of your sections. You'll have sort of one rice dish four ways and represent rice in different cultures. So you have like the fried rice and you have a Nigerian lamb one. You have a right, like fried every, rice. But every culture has fried rice, right? right. You know, the Chinese migrant workers have woven through culture and you see it. And then, you know, I use the word humbling. But when we were writing this book, it was like a lot of ignorant moments that I wrote like, oh, man, I should have knew history better. But nobody talks about it. I hope that that's what this book does. It just opens up people's eyes in the kitchen as they're learning that rice is like the Swiss army knife or, you know, the miracle food of what I call it, that they also realize how much culture in the dish it is and it makes them look at people different. A hundred percent. I mean, I loved in your book, there's so many good recipes throughout it as well as we did barely touched on the desserts at the end. But before we let you go, wondering if you can talk a little bit about Field Trip, your restaurant, and while rice is at the heart of the menu, 
you really care a lot about sustainability, both about the planet and biodiversity of rice and, and other plants, but also about caring about the workers and having fair pay for workers. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you manifest your ethics in your business when it comes to the food, the people, affordability, sustainability, all those things. I purchase food that I want to eat. And that's kind of where it starts for me. The freshly milled rice for me isn't just about people consuming it. It's also like supporting the ecosystem. A lot of us are going to learn very soon that the rice that we've been consuming has been putting out like a carbon footprint similar to cows. And the rice that Filtra purchase is done in this very ethically way to help save global warming or the ozone layer. And then that bleeds into like, who do we hire? For me, it's really important. Like we're hiring people that represent the communities that the restaurant's in or people that are looking for a safe space to work in. And I just never had that when I came up in the industry. Like, yes, there were definitely some safe spaces in restaurants, but very toxicity. Mm -hmm. I'm taking all this on my shoulders, but trying to paint a place of like how the space should look. And I think that's why Field Trip is really successful because we have a diverse bunch of people from age to gender to ethnicity. And that's why people really come to eat, not because it's delicious, because they know we stand for something. And it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I so appreciate the way that you're using your platform as a chef around workers, as well as creating a market for rice and supporting rice growing communities and varieties and biodiversity and all of that. It's a really important way to use that platform and that you're out speaking about the people and the planet. So it's great. Thank you very much. That was J.J. Johnson. His rice-focused New York City restaurants are called Field Trip. The motto, rice is culture. He's the co-author of The Simple Art of Rice. You'll find three classic rice recipes from the book on our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Meg Dalton, Tegan Engel, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know what we're cooking up every month, subscribe to the Full Plate newsletter. I load it up with recipes from cookbooks I love, links to recent episodes, and gardening tips from Charlie Nardozzi. Go to ctpublic.org newsletters to sign up. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. We have a really fun show coming up about dining alone. Don't miss it.